Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But what people don't talk about is that by the end of this century, we will have likely reached the end of humanity. And by that, I mean, we will have conquered death. I think people don't comprehend the extent to which what it means to be human is defined by death. The choices that we make moment to moment, day to day, are all about optimizing our lives over death, given within the constraint of we only have a limited amount of time, death is inevitable for us, death, is, death will be coming, and what does my life mean in the context of death, etc. That's just what it is to be human. We're going to take it away. We are going to be creating digital life forms, some based on humans, some not based on humans, that really aren't going to die. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jesse, what? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work uh, through way of your publicist. And I know you do some amazing work in virtual reality. And funny enough, I've never talked to anybody here on the show that does work with virtual reality. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up influencing and shaping the choices that you've made with your life and career? Uh, well, let's see. My mother was a nurse and my father was a clerk. Um at a, at a small manufacturing company. Um, and I'm not at all sure that their careers affected me very much, but I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. And I, I sometimes think that had a lot more influence on me. Uh, one of my grandfathers was a CEO of a company and the other was a mathematician. Hmm. Did you get particular career advice or guidance on how to make your way in the world from you know either parents or grandparents? Some. I mean, uh, certainly I know that my mother was very encouraging of getting out there and trying stuff. Um, a big moment for me, uh, a, a huge hobby I had when I was a young teenager was juggling. I was really interested in juggling and circus arts. And um, there was a very pivotal moment for me. Um I had heard about a friend at school who was who I knew did some juggling and things who was part of the entertainment group at the local amusement park. Um, it was uh, Riverside Park, which is now Six Flags New England. I was in Massachusetts at the time, and uh, and I had the idea like, oh wow, maybe applying there would be cool. And my my mother was very encouraging. Yeah, you should definitely apply. And so, you know, this is before internet and everything. So we drove over and picked up the forms, and I take them home and I go to fill out the forms. And they have little boxes to check. Do you want to be on rides, shows, food? Oh, no, ride, ride, the shows wasn't on there. That was the thing. It was like rides, food, maintenance, et cetera. 
And there was nothing about shows or entertainment, and I was really disappointed. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just do rides or something. And she says, are you crazy? That's not what you want to do. You want to do the shows, and you know they have shows there. So you don't need to check any of these boxes. Just write them a letter telling them what you want to do, fill out the rest of the form, and submit that. Which at the time seemed a little crazy to me, but I'm like, okay, I guess so. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. And they reached out, and they said, oh, we are looking for people to be part of our uh, our show troupe. And um, they brought me in for an audition, and it, it worked out. It was, And that ended up being very... Uh, influential for me. Hmm. Why do you think that there are certain people who will look at sort of the options in front of them and say, okay, these are it. These are, this is, these are my choices. I don't think there's, you know, anything else that I can do. And then there are other people who will say, okay, none of these work for me. So I'm going to basically go around the options or, you know, go around the system and do whatever it is that I want to do. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think it's really hard to say. I think it's partly, um, experience uh if you've had the experience of like going around the system and it's worked for you um it that becomes like oh this is a great technique um but uh and i i don't know that's that's a tough question so much of the way we're raised you know as you go through school systems uh etc is all about you should just follow orders and do what you're told and mm. um the getting to that point where you can you can kind of go around that and say, well, wait a minute, what if I didn't? What if we did this some different way, some new way? Um, you know, it's the old the old question of sheep versus goats. I think it's a it's a it's a big question. I think for some of it, it's it's something people have inside them, but then it's also a question of what you're conditioned to. Hmm. So I, I know that you know you've also spent time as an academic at, at Carnegie Mellon, of course, which is one of these schools that is you know known for sort of breeding world class computer scientists. I know this because I'm a Berkeley undergrad. So uh, how has that mindset impacted the way that you teach students? And you know, when people have been so conditioned to the previous mindset to be sheep for their whole lives, uh, and then they go into academia, which seems to only reinforce this mindset. As somebody who teaches what you do, how do you think about breaking that conditioning? Yeah, and that's the wonderful thing about the place where I've been teaching. You know, the last 18 years, I've been at the Entertainment Technology Center at Carnegie Mellon, which is a fascinating program. It's a, it's a master's level program designed to uh, create leaders for the entertainment uh, technology industries. And the, what we take into the program, we take about 40% computer scientists, 40% artists, and 20% miscellaneous. And the whole point of the program is to teach people to work with others outside their discipline in order to invent things that you couldn't possibly do alone, which is very unusual for a college. Because um, so typically, colleges are all about division. They're all about, you know, this department does this and that department does that. And there's not a lot of room for ways to kind of effectively cross-collaborate. And in fact, colleges, I think, have a greater problem this way which is, uh, it's a cultural problem. People who are really great at teamwork and pulling a team together to do great things, they tend to go out into the world. Whereas if you look at the life of a college professor, it tends to be very solitary. It's all about, you know, you, you define your classes, you define your research. You do sometimes work with people, but not in the same way that you do out in the in the working world you're you're you know it, it's it's so i guess what i'm getting to is 
people who are inclined toward independence and being solitary are drawn to the university life. And what that means is that that's what is being taught um, in the in the universities. It means universities generally aren't great at teaching teamwork. You very rarely hear about, oh, what an excellent team of professors working together. That that That's not a thing that comes up a lot. Yeah. So what it means is there's an opportunity for it. And the Entertainment Technology Center has definitely been that way. We Our, our whole a group is a completely diverse set of faculty. We have we have faculty who are actors and musicians and, and and artists and programmers, and we all work together trying to kind of help the students learn how to to build teams and to and to be to to um, really thrive in this interdisciplinary teamwork situation. Um, and so that's that's been very exciting. Well, it's funny to hear you talk about academia because my dad is a college professor, uh, you know, like I grew up around academics, you know, and the funny thing I was thinking of, as you were saying that I'm thinking to myself about Berkeley, which is supposedly like this liberal hippie enclave. And then I look at my experience and, you know, my experience is that this place is a breeding ground for conformity, ironically. Uh, so I wonder, particularly now with everything we're seeing in terms of classes going online, students throwing a fit over the fact that they're paying 50 grand to get something they could get on Coursera for free. How do you think about the future of education? Like, what do you think is wrong? What do you think is updated? Because I think that, you know, the experience you're describing and your group is an anomaly, not something that is normal. Yeah, the, there's always this fascinating question about what is the true value of college? And for a couple decades, I've been hearing people decry the coming death of uh, colleges. But every year, the prices of college goes up and goes up and goes up, and everybody keeps paying it. And every year, people keep saying, oh, oh, the death is coming, the death is coming. And it's interesting to kind of stare at the whole thing and to understand what is the value that people actually see, because people are paying that money. Um. And it's a complicated question. I I think because the naive view, of course, is, oh, you're paying to learn. You're paying for information. The school's going to give you information, and uh, that's what you're paying for. And that that's certainly a naive view. And when you look at it that way, it, that does not seem like a good value. But that's not really what people are paying for. What people are really paying for is social credentialing, right? If you take it way back to a more primitive time, there's, there's a time in everybody's life in the tribe when you go to the elders and you try and try and prove to the elders that you are a worthy adult. And if you pass, they give you the mark of adulthood and, um, and, and then you move on with now, now you have the approval of the elders and your life is different. And that's exactly what is the main thing. That is what I would say the, the primary value that people see in it. Is the idea that they have they have come through this experience they have, they have they have now been credentialed they were there was a strong filtering process just to get into the place and then the place itself is a strong filtering process because it's possible to fail out and not yeah. get your diploma um, and uh, so I don't think that's going to go away uh, people are still going to want that that strong credentialing. Um, and so, so I, I think that is all, that's all going to stay in place. The question is, um, as people are kind of confronting the business of like, you know, um, going to school from home, et cetera, what does, 
you know, is, is that going to change? Is that going to start to become more normal? And I think some of it may, but yeah. at, the, at the same time, um, I, I continue to believe that online education is going to be um, something very peripheral um, in the longer term. You know, since we're all thrust into this quarantine situation, everyone's very focused on it and wondering, could this become normal? Could this become our, our, our most common thing? But I, I, I look at online education. My guess is it's going to be, uh, I think it will grow and there will be more of it, but I think it's going to hold a place a little bit like we think of uh, community college. I don't, mm. I don't, I, I, it'll, it's like, yep, this is an alternative that more people are going to be doing and it's a little more normal, uh, but I don't think it's going to be the most normal. Um, and I don't think it will be held in the highest regard. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've talked to numerous professors about this and, you know, I, I personally think you just cannot create the experience of, I mean, and I think this plays out in our social lives as well. It's really different to sit around and talk to my parents on Zoom than it is to sit at a dinner table and hang out with them. Like yep. the two just have no comparison. Right. Um, but, you know, when I, when I hear you talk about the credentialing process and I think back to the Berkeley experience, I'm like, all right, I got shit grades at Berkeley. Like, you know, it's not the degree, it's the things that I had to do to get in there and to actually get out of there. Those right. are the skills that have served me later in life. You know, the ability to look at systems and say, okay, because, you know, Berkeley is the kind of place being this large public school where you literally have to look at systems and say, okay, what in this system do I think is bullshit and what rules am I willing to break? Like I had a friend who literally walked into the dean's office two weeks before graduation and said, I didn't get into the business school. I've taken all of the classes. My parents are coming to graduation on Saturday. Are you going to let me come or not? Or let, let me get the degree or not? And she didn't have a choice. She was livid. Because he didn't follow any of the rules, but two, what is she going to do two years later? Say, no, you have all the classes, <laughs> which to me, I never forgot that as an example of somebody who was willing to look at a system and completely ignore all its rules. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, let's shift gears and let's start talking about video games because uh, I am, despite being a person who could give two shits about sports, an avid sports video game player. Uh, literally, I play every day and, you know, Video games are one of those things that have had this sort of steady presence in my life from, you know, the original Nintendo up until now at the age of 41. And I, I remember when Xbox came out and people were like $50 a game. And I would tell friends, I was like, you don't understand. The demographic is not kids for these games. It's people my age because we were the ones who grew up with this stuff. So where in the world did this uh, love and fast, like how in the world did you end up becoming a game developer? Because I don't imagine like somebody who doesn't have a love for video games goes and works on them for a living. Oh yeah, no, I've definitely had uh, a love for video games since I was since I was very young. Of course, I mean, I'm I'm old enough that I remember back before video games, um, and I have always loved any. I, I've loved all kinds of entertainment. Um, entertainment's always been fascinating to me, and it's funny looking back over my life about the things that I've really uh, uh, been passionate about. Um, you know, I'm looking at everything from oh, you know. Uh, you know, video games to circus arts to paranormal phenomena to all kinds of things. I like realizing that, oh, the things that I'm interested in are always things that seem magical. And so that, that's definitely been the strongest theme in, in my life. And video games are definitely one of those things because not only do you have the technology doing things that are just sort of tricky and interesting, Video games are a place where the technology is kind of intersecting with the human mind and leveraging the human mind um, and giving it what it needs in order to foster its imagination, in order to just build up these kind of 
imaginary spaces that aren't just, you're not just imagining them, you're, you're actually touching them and interacting with them. All games have been interesting to me that way. I mean, just the, the idea of board games is, is, is similar, right? It's just, just some cardboard and a couple cubes and a few pieces of uh, plastic. And suddenly you've got this whole world where people are having big arguments about what happens in this little world. And, and video games just take that even farther. So it was something that was, um, that was just always really interesting to me. And I, I started getting into uh, just computer programming, I don't know, probably I was about 10 years old, just as a hobby, because it was just interesting and fascinating. And I started making my own games just as, as a hobby. And it wasn't until years later that I realized it was actually possible to make a career out of it. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hmm. So uh, you have this overwhelmingly positive view of video games. And I, I can tell you, you know, the, the amount of time we got to spend on the console is an ongoing fight with Indian parents. So of course, my mom basically would like go to sleep. And of course, we come to find out that she is the one playing them herself a few hours later. <laughs> you know, to this day, she still thinks like the original Nintendo is the greatest thing since sliced bread so much so that my sister actually went and got herself one. Um, and, you know, I can tell you that I live with my current roommate because of the fact that we started playing uh, NBA 2K20 together and we would meet up every Wednesday and play it and it became this huge bonding experience. But there's this other side of the video game argument that often you hear from parents of, you know, oh, video games are rotting these kids brains. They don't do anything else. I, I tend to think that's a bit extreme. And I, I'm wondering, you know, what are the pro- like, what do we know sort of from a child development standpoint, because I don't think that you go through childhood unless you're a weirdo without being exposed to video games to some degree. Oh yeah. No. Well, I mean, there are, there are definitely families that choose to keep the games away from the children. I mean, we, at, at our studio, we're, we're constantly play testing, uh, games and working with families working. And so we, we see all kinds of people and, and we definitely run into families where they, it's just not, Video games is, is just isn't a thing they do. They've kind of, you know, very similar to families who like I'm, I'm my kid's never going to have refined sugar. Like okay, it's a choice, and and you can you can make that choice, and people can be raised that way. Um, but they are such a part of culture now. It it is such a normal part of uh, of, of popular culture, and they uh, there are real choices that everybody has to face, and that that is definitely part of the. The world of uh, video games. Actually, I, I I often think that uh, video games and refined sugar are a pretty good comparison, right? Um, sugar is not a thing that normally occurs in nature. We have to kind of work hard in order to extract it out of uh, natural foods, and then we create things with it that human beings find very uh, appealing and delicious. And we know that too much of it, that's not good for you. And video games are very similar. We're not, you're not experiencing reality. You're experiencing kind of a refined reality where we're taking out kind of some of the most interesting and exciting parts and sort of distilling them down into an, into an exciting experience. And uh, similarly, you've got to find that balance. How is this going to fit into my life in a healthy way? Because uh, video games definitely have many aspects that uh, can be very healthy in terms of uh, the problem solving, the socializing, uh, the imagination building, the creativity. An awful lot of that is there. But to the extent that you get so engaged with them that you're pushing out other parts of your life that kind of are going to help you developmentally, or if you're leaning on them um, or using them as a, as, a, uh, as a shield against your own emotions, those things are definitely unhealthy. It's it. I think it's very similar to the relationships that people have uh, with foods. You can you can you can have a very healthy relationship, but you can also, um, you know, if you if if too much excess on certain things can be quite unhealthy. Yeah. 
So we have the the former CEO of Take Two Interactive here, uh, and one of the things I, I you know wanted to get him to talk about was a game like Grand Theft Auto, and he was you know I kind of feel like he gave me sort of the PR version of talking about that game. But yeah. that game, you know, I mean, it's funny because to me, that was the game that I never could actually play because I would just go in and wreak havoc on the city. And, yeah. and yet, you know, there's been so many criticisms of games like that that have the, you know, sort of implicit violence that is incredibly graphic and detailed in a way that, you know, when we were growing up, you just couldn't fathom a game being that ridiculous in terms of the detail. Yeah. How do you, as, as somebody who's a CEO of a gaming company, think about games like that? You know, like, and particularly when you have these parents who are like, oh, the cause of school shootings is games like Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, I think the question of the relationship between violence and games is a deep and complicated one that, uh, that it behooves everybody to look at and to think about. Certainly, the, the, the games that will get parents the most... Uh, nervous and upset are going to be the ones that are closest to crimes that their child might commit. Um, you know, like, I, cause I remember, for example, we were working on a pirates of the Caribbean game. It was a, this was a, a thing we made for Disney quest. So this was this big elaborate theme park video game that it's like four giant screens surrounding like a, a like a physical boat that was on a m motorized motion platform. And, we had six spun aluminum cannons on it and a big wooden ship's wheel. And we would bring families in and they would kind of go on this virtual adventure on this, on this, you know, a giant video game pirate ship. When we first had our prototype working, we were going to bring people in to play this. And what you do, you'd sail out in the sea and you'd blast the heck out of all these other pirate ships that were out there. And our very first play testing was four days after the Columbine school shooting. And we're all looking at each other like, wow, our, what are families going to say? Are they going to be disgusted? Are they going to be outraged? We're not sure how people are going to react. And then we had two whole days of bringing families through. Nobody made any comments. Everyone was just simply delighted with it. And we realized that, oh, that's, you know, the yes, you are going around and like, you know, blasting and blasting and blasting and firing these guns. But the idea of sailing around in a pirate ship firing cannons is just so divorced from any reality that anybody expects they're going to be in that no one had any concerns with it. Yeah. So it, these, the issues of, of you've got the issues of what's going to bother people, what's going to scare people and then what's going to, um, and then what's on people's minds and games. Yeah flirt with this all the time. One of the ones that I definitely learned at Disney, we polled all kinds of parents about which video games are over the line, which ones are not. And it's very simple, the difference between over the line and not over the line. And that difference is blood. Games that have blood, definitely over the line. Games without blood, it's fine. You know, we'd, wow. we'd, I remember putting games like Virtua Fighter versus Mortal Kombat, something like that. The games fundamentally are very similar. Two people kicking each other in the face for, for five mm -hmm. or six minutes. Um, but in one of them, there's blood and in one of them, there's not. And the one was not, it's like, that's fine. Um, wow. which is interesting. It's only, there's something very, very human, um, in, in that response. But yeah. the thing to be aware of is even though that's what people use as their signifier and what people feel comfortable with is one thing, but what actually changes behavior is a whole deeper question that we don't know. So you look at a game like Fortnite, for example, which is so massively popular. 
And it has very carefully skirted and found ways to stay inside the line, even though it is a game about glorifying um, uh, slaughter with automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very careful. It's like, oh, we're going to make them colorful. We're going to make them cartoony. And we're not going to have the blood there. Um, but you have this real question of could it be that this game is, you know, opening people up to being comfortable with the idea of of killing people with automatic weapons is a is a tough that's a tough question and then you have just bigger questions with video games because how many video games are there where the premise is basically this um here's you and look here's a bunch of people and they don't look like you they look different than you solution Here's a gun. You need to kill as many of the people who don't look like you as possible. That's yeah. probably the most normal uh, video game trope. And so there's there's a lot we all have to think about. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this, particularly because you mentioned sort of, you know, thinking of this in terms of crimes they could imagine their kids committing or it, like I played Grand Theft Auto. I can't see myself going like I literally can never see myself going up, you know, walking down the streets of Boulder where I live and, you know, stealing a police car just for shits and giggles, you know, uh, or, you know, going and, and just, you know, shooting random people on the street, even though I've done it in a game. Uh, so I think that that's just a, a fascinating sort of thing. And then the other thing is a game like that, that was one of the most popular video games of all time. So we know that it reached a lot of people, right. uh, but you're right. Yeah. I mean, we don't, I guess we don't really have the research at this point to show that there's an absolute link between violent behavior and that, because I am far from a violent person just because I played, you know, grand theft auto. Yeah. And it's, it's complicated. Cause honestly, if you look at, if you pull up the graphs of the rise of video game revenues, and then you pull up the graphs of, say, violent crime in America, um, even though the media likes to make us think that violent crime has been gradually increasing and the world is going to hell that way, it's not true. Violent crime has been gradually decreasing for the last 30 years. Um, and, it, you know, you try and find out why the police are, will say, oh, it's because we're doing such a good job. Well, OK, maybe. Um, yeah. But we don't really know why. This is. And one of the weirder hypotheses is, well, what if the video games actually are helping in this regard? What if the violent video games are acting as a form of catharsis where and you can imagine some kid who's like, you know, had a rotten day at school, has a tough time at home and he's really frustrated and his girlfriend just dumped him. And he's thinking of going out and smashing some windows with a rock or something. And instead, he stays home and he plays Grand Theft Auto and crashes a bunch of cars and goes to bed. Um, you can imagine that situation, but is that how the world really works? And we just we simply don't know. This is the world of mass media. People, things get invented, just like television. Television, well, no one knew is television going to be good for humanity, bad for humanity? I don't know. Let's just stick it out there and see what happens. We still don't know what yeah. the you know really the the jury's still out. What about the internet? What about Facebook? What about Instagram? Are these things good for us? Bad for us? We just we just dive in and uh, have to have to deal with it. And, and games is definitely one of those things. Yeah. So I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about you uh, the work that you've done in virtual reality of all things. Because I you know yeah. like I, I you know I think about sort of Grand Theft Auto playing it the way that I do, and then I think, wow, how different would that be in a virtual reality situation, like going up and punching people and, and shooting them and, you know, having yeah. the ability to feel like haptics at this point. Uh, yeah. 
So one, you know, where are we at with VR? Because I think that I remember about two years ago when we did our first book launch, you know, VR was kind of, you know, sort of super hot on the presses. And then it, it seemed like it kind of just faded into the background and people were like, okay, this is sort of a long-term play, particularly for investors. And, uh, you know, the experiences I had, some were clunky. If I really wanted to have a non-clunky experience, the headsets were super expensive. Uh, you know, and then of course the porn industry is always at the forefront of all of this stuff for some reason. Where are we at right now with all of this? Yeah, we're at a really, really interesting place. <clears throat> we are right on the cusp of that moment. We are at that moment right before virtual reality got really big. It reminds me a lot. I'm old enough to remember uh, when, say, the Apple II computer came out. And we had computers like the Apple II in homes, not a lot of them. I mean, the Apple II only sold, I think, a total of 2 million units worldwide in its whole life. Um, but that's an that's a okay amount, somewhere out there. Um, and people were looking at it. You know, this is, we're talking about late 70s here. And uh, they cost $2,500, I think, something like that. And people said, wow, um, there was a big deal about these computers in the home when they first came out. But, boy, they're so expensive. And they're really clunky. and is this really going to be a thing? This is just a fad that's going away. I think this is just a fad that's going away. And a few years later, we had something like the Commodore 64 comes out, you know, maybe three years after the Apple II. More or less the same machine, but instead of $2,500, it costs $299, $399. And uh, now it's in color. It's a little better, a little better support, a little better memory, not a lot more. Um, and suddenly it's huge. And it sells, I don't know, I think $18 million. 20 million units, something like that. It becomes a really big deal. And suddenly computing in the home is normal. Um, and that's where we are. We're, we are there right now. We're at that, that junction point where people have said, oh, well, it came out. It's kind of clunky, kind of expensive. But uh, I, Oculus has shown us the way with the Quest system. Um, the Oculus Quest is a remarkable system. It only costs $399. It doesn't have any wires. It doesn't need a computer. It doesn't need a phone. It's just its own thing. Um, you just you just take it out, put it on, and you go. And uh, people are buying them as fast as they can make them. Right now, they seem to be little. <laughs> they're on back order. I know because I looked. Yeah, yeah, no, they're way on back order, right? And and but the, the thing is, they haven't made enough for it to make a massive cultural uh, uh, impact. But we're seeing it as people who make virtual reality software for every one unit that we sell on for, for PC virtual reality, we sell 20 units on the Quest because the people who have the Quest, they love it and they are buying the games. And so uh, we're re I'm really feeling like the Quest and systems like it, we're gonna, it's going to naturally have competitors. We've found the form factor. That we we've we found the the form factor that is going to take it mass market. So uh, I, I really think the next the next two years we will easily be getting into that space of over 10 million um, units out in the in the marketplace. It's going to become. I don't think it's it's not like it's going to take over video games, but it's going to become a meaningful part of the video game pie chart as 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 it were. I, I think I think it'll be. My prediction is it's going to be. Somewhere in the ten to twenty percent of the video games sold are going to be virtual reality by so twenty twenty five. We're talking about VR in the context of video games, and you mentioned mm -hmm. cultural impact. What is the cultural impact at large of having sort of you know VR capability? Because I think there are a lot of people who have 
you know, serious concerns. I mean, you, you hear sort of the, the anti-porn industry people freaking out saying this is going to be, I mean, I have friends who will joke. They're like, great. If you'd have a bad date, good thing to know. You can go home and sleep with a porn star now. Uh, but I mean, there's some, there's a grain of truth to that too. You know, like, especially when you get to the point where it becomes so real that we get things like haptics in VR. Uh, yeah, I mean, the haptics is, uh, <clears throat> There's a there's a thousand technological problems that are going to keep that from being um, <clears throat> meaningfully mainstream. We're just nowhere. We don't really have a, a real lead on how to do that, except in some very specific use cases. But in terms of any sort of general purpose, wow! Now I now I'm really feeling things on my skin. Um, I'm not I'm not looking at that any any time in the in the near term. Any kind of in the next ten years. But what VR is really good at. The, the thing I think people don't comprehend about the power of VR, people think of it as a technology for the eyes, um, just like it's some kind of 3D glasses or something. And it's not. That's, that's not where the power of VR is. Um, the power of VR is that it's a technology for the body. Because um, one of the really interesting things that the mind does is the mind makes a decision about what's real and what's not. When you, no one, when they're watching television, becomes worried that the things in the, on the television are in the room with them. It's never, a, it never even occurs to anybody that that's, that that could be true. But when people are doing VR, their bodies sometimes forget what is and isn't real. And we'll see it all the time. We'll see uh, say you have a puzzle solving game and people are working, they're got their, you know, they're using their hands in VR to kind of move the puzzle pieces and do this and do that. And then they get to a part where they're not sure what to do. And they're staring at the puzzle and they're thinking, and there's a little virtual table that's next to them. And absentmindedly, they will reach over and lean on the table as if it were real. And then they'll fall a little bit because they're like, oh, oh, whoa, 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 yeah, wait, that's not real, is it? Right. And they know, obviously, intellectually, that the virtual table is not real. But what's happened is when you when you engage in the in the loop that is virtual reality, where when I move my head and when I move my hands, I'm actually engaging in the world just like I engage with my body in the real world. Your brain buys into some of it and accepts that this is this is um, real on some level. It reminds me of um, the lucid dreamers, right? Uh, you know, lucid dreaming and the idea of a dream that you where you wake up, but you're still in the dream and you can control the dream to some extent. Some people get very passionate about lucid dreaming and try and develop techniques so they can do it a lot. And one of the interesting techniques that they use is if, if, you're, if you're in a dream and you suddenly realize, oh, wait, this is a dream, the dream will start to fade because that's kind of how the brain works, because that means your brain's realized this isn't real. I don't want to deal with things that aren't real. One of the techniques is you look at your hand. And if you, if you stare at your hand in the dream, very often the world will start to congeal around you because there's something about the idea of seeing your own hand and willing your fingers to move and seeing them move. There's something about that that helps convince the mind that this is real. And that is one of the things that everyone's figured out with VR is 
It wasn't enough. We tried it a few years ago. You just put on a headset and look around. It wasn't enough. We had to have hand controllers because the the once you have the hand controllers, there's something about the world that just becomes much more real and present. And so that uh, that feeling of being in another place um, is something that VR can provide that no other medium can successfully provide. And that's the power of it. Mm, wow. What, you know, I love how you talked about the power of it. What is the impact going to be on our social interaction? You know, because it seems to me there are both positives and negatives to that could come from this, particularly like wow. right now as we're thinking about quarantine um, and the fact that, hey, you know what, I may not see my parents for a year, but if I could have a VR experience in which it felt like they were there more so mm-hmm. than on Zoom, I would absolutely get myself a headset and do that. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and so I think we're going to see, so we're going to see the same pattern that we see with all uh, computer technologies. Things initially come out and they're independent, they're single player, et cetera. And then we cross a threshold where multiplayer becomes the norm. And that threshold is generally 10 million. Um, When there's less than 10 million of something in the world, what it means is probably none of your friends have it. And so you're going to be doing it by yourself. When there's more than 10 million of something in the world, probably at least one of your friends has it. And at that point, you start to really get these powerful network effects. And we saw it with PCs, and we saw it with smartphones, and we've seen it with Facebook. And we've seen this pattern again and again. And we're going to see it with VR, too. So right now, almost everything in VR is single player. There are some exceptions. There's things that are kind of multiplayer. But once, you know, maybe two, three years from now, we're going to get to that point where more than 10 million people have it, the network stuff is going to start to become the norm. And people will start to more and more engage in that powerful experience of social networked VR, where you um, actually get to experience the physical presence of another person um, that in the room with you. And it is it is powerful because the, um, the the systems are good at spatializing the sound, making it sound like the sound is coming from a, a given spot. And even with a very crude avatar, because the systems are constantly tracking each of your hands and constantly tracking your head, those little nuanced movements that that we do when we talk with our head and our hands, they come across and make make the avatars become very real. And and uh, and feel very alive. Um, I, I guess one way I, I like to put it is, um, this is going to be the medium where you can actually make eye contact, even if wow. you're doing Zoom or Skype or something. You 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 don't we don't make good eye contact on that because if I'm looking at the screen, I'm not looking at the camera, and if I'm looking at the camera, I'm not looking at the screen, and so the eye contact is never quite right. But in these VR systems, it can be quite right because um, they are they are looking at our eyes. They know what our eyes are trying to do, and the system can figure out what you're trying to look at. And you can get that meaningful eye contact. You can, and weirder, you can like reach up and stroke somebody's hair. Some yeah. of the some of the most powerful VR experiences are because VR there's a there's a nucleus in the brain that is responsible for paying attention to objects that are within um, that are that are within maybe two three feet of our face okay it's basically anything that's between my hand and my head um, this nucleus is very interested in and it makes sense we should have a part of our brain that's like hey what is this is this is really up in my personal space right now and it's in there's an easy way you can make yourself wake this up you can't do it yourself 
But if you're with another person and you have them stick their hand like into that zone, you feel it. Like there's this, oh, this is little thing that wakes up in you. And TV can't do it. Movies can't do it. But VR is really good at it. And so there's a lot of VR experiences. It's one of the ways VR experiences differ from normal video games. Normal video games are all about running around over huge territories is what most video games are about. VR is actually kind of bad at that because um, it, it can induce motion sickness when it's not implemented right. And so the stronger VR games are less about running around over you know six acres and instead are about doing intimate things with your hands in a smaller space. So it, it moves from kind of shooting games into things like, you know, sword fighting and boxing and those, those sorts of things, you know, when it comes to kind of combat stuff. And the idea of having characters kind of up close talking to you in an intimate way is uh, one of the more powerful experiences. Well, it's, you know, as you're talking about sort of interacting with people in an intimate way via virtual reality, like I can't think about, I can't help but think about the implications this is going to have for online dating. Like it fundamentally changes this whole sort of swipe right or left. It's like, oh, cool. I'll come and meet you and hang out with you for a bit. Uh, that's it's, I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity there um, for somebody because, uh, you know, a, a big part of dating is the the whole notion of like, how do we communicate? And like, what is the nature of body language and yeah. like and i i think i do think that is going to be a fascinating element that happens and one of the things i'm really curious to see up till now the people doing vr have generally been super techie early adopter folks um you know because they've had to spend like first they've got to have a two thousand dollar pc and then they've got to spend seven hundred dollars on a vr system that's really going to limit who who can afford and who's interested in even trying the system but once these systems get down to $300, that kind of thing, we're already we're seeing the people who were buying the Oculus Quest, they're not the, they're not the people who were buying these systems a couple of years ago. It's a very different market. So we're going to see this sort of mass market phenomenon. And I, I do think the people who are going to embrace it the most are going to be teenagers because teenagers have the time. They have a desire to kind of explore weird things. And they really have a desire to kind of um, isolate themselves from their family and explore something uh, on their own. And so, uh, and I, so I think the social part is going to be a big part of that. I think the dating part, which of course is such a big part of teenagers' lives, is going to be part of that. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see the social effects that come out of this. Yeah. So speaking of social effects, this is probably a very strange question. And I'm guessing based on our conversation, you've read Jeremy Balenson's book, Infinite Reality. Um, I, I One of the things I thought about a lot uh, is this whole idea of uploading your consciousness to the internet, right? Now, yeah. one thing I wonder about is, let's say that I lose a parent, but that parent has uploaded their consciousness to the internet, and I can go and have this interaction, for example, with a deceased parent in VR, weird sort of comment I realized in question. Do you ever think about things like that and like what the implications of that are? Like, is that good? Is it bad? You know, no, this is the very end of humanity that we're talking about and people don't like to face it. You know, people talk like, Oh, uh Oh, global warming. It's going to be the greatest threat that we've ever had. Like, yeah. Okay. Global warming is the thing. Things are going to get a little hotter and a little wetter. That's totally true. Um, but what people don't talk about, is that by the end of this century, we will have likely reached the end of humanity. 
And by that, I mean we will have conquered death. And because I think people don't comprehend the extent to which what it means to be human is defined by death. The choices that we make moment to moment, day to day, are all about optimizing our lives over death, given within the constraint of we only have a limited amount of time, death is inevitable for us, death is death will be coming, and what does my life mean in the context of death, etc. That's just what it is to be human. And we're going to take it away. We are going to find a way between medicine, between scanning, um, between uh, digital computation, we are going to be creating uh, digital life forms, um, ba some based on humans, some not based on humans, that really aren't going to die. And um, that's just going to be radically different. Like, we're not well equipped to the, the changes in society that's going to wreak are, are just way beyond almost anything we can comprehend because every aspect of everything in society is based on death. Our, our, our jobs, our education, our, our family formation, every, our rituals, our culture, everything is, is anchored on that. And it will all be, uh, it will all be over. And so that's, there's, the, there's an awful lot uh, to think about and talk about there. And the, big, the, the conversations, um, it's, it, this is one of these things where it's not a question of is it going to happen, it's just what order are things going to happen in? And what does that mean? So it, it is a, a rich topic of conversation. I feel like we could do an hour on just that alone. Mm -hmm. um, but, so but, and that's the thing. It would have to only be an hour because we're going to die. Right? <laughs> if you have infinite so, life, you wouldn't care. You'd say, let's do a four-year program on this. Who cares? Yeah. Well, one of the things I noticed is you seem overwhelmingly optimistic, which I, I appreciate. I mean, I don't think you would do the work that you do if you, you didn't. Uh, what are the things that scare you about this? Like, What are the things that make you nervous about what's possible with this technology? Uh, well, I guess, see, I, I'm an optimist in general because I am just generally optimistic about human beings, um, that, at, at how good we are at making the best of terrible situations, right? Um, we're just, we just constantly, it just constantly amazes me that the extent that we're able to do that. I mean, we invent the atomic bomb, which could have easily, like by now, if, if we had decided, we could have wiped out the entire human race um, a thousand times. And we're like, yeah, nah, actually, that's a terrible idea. We should probably stop that, right? Even the way we're dealing with this pandemic right now. Um, like, yeah, you know, yeah, we, yes, we definitely, everybody's reaction was kind of slow and late and problematic, but everybody's on it. The whole, I mean, this, it's just fascinating to me thinking about the whole world. Um, I, I'd sent out a little, a, a little tweet cause it was something I thought of that amused me. Uh, you know, aliens come down and they say, humans, why have you stopped your comings and goings? And, and we answer that, uh, well, we, we, we're doing it in order to, uh, protect, uh, our, our elders. And the aliens say, well, how? 
how incredibly noble is this race? And we say, do you do you have any toilet paper? Because we don't we don't have any toilet paper. Um, I just amuse myself with these things sometimes. But this, the, but these are the things we do. The human race makes the best of whatever happens. And I and I and I. It, that doesn't mean there's not going to be bad things. Most of the bad things that come from technology is when it comes to over-centralization. Um, when someone finds a way to use technology in conjunction with power that they hold over people in order to um, uh, make their lives worse for some reason. But generally, that kind of tyranny doesn't stand for, for too long. Um, and it's not, it's never the technology that's the problem. It's always the tyranny that it's being used with that tends to be the problem. Well, it, I mean, like I said, this just raises a whole host of other questions, which in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, okay, well, if you cheat on somebody in virtual reality, does it count as cheating? <laughs> you know, uh, there's like a whole moral and ethical sort of, you yeah. know, landmine that, that you oh, yeah. explore. Oh yeah, no. There's a million. There's a million things here that everyone's going to have to think about. Everyone's going to have to wonder about what they. I mean, people have. I've heard people talk about it with you know virtual reality porn. Like there are some really f- kind of weird aspects about that. I've talked to people who, uh, who who were like, you know, hey, I tried that once, and uh, I'm not doing that again. It's it's too real. <laughs> and I'm like, that's fascinating. The idea of pornography that's so real that somebody can't handle it um and then talking to other people are like wait a minute like this is this is way more like cheating than uh than uh you know just looking at a you know something on the internet um there's there are going to be all kinds of social uh implications and like back to the violence issue um you know sitting on my couch and tapping the a button and you know watching a little movie play on the screen where people get shot up like okay there's there's aspects of that that are kind of creepy but like, eh, whatever. It's just kind of a cartoon little game that I'm playing. But when you kind of put on that VR headset and you are holding a pistol in each hand and you're like standing there trying to optimize your aim so that you can kind of shoot as many people as possible. And like you're learning the muscle memory of what it would take to slaughter a bunch of people in a subway station or something. Um, it's creepy. Like it's, you, you've crossed into this realm that's, that, uh, it doesn't necessarily feel great. Um, so there's just, you know, these, these, this is, this is what it means to be human. We're kind of making stuff. We're experimenting. We're trying to figure out what's okay. What's not okay. And the part I like is it's making everybody question, um, what's, you know, what's, what, what is important and how do we change and what, what are our values? What do we care about? Yeah. It's funny to hear you listen to the VR porn experience because I was like, clearly I need a better headset because, my experience wasn't nearly real enough. Uh, but, uh, but anyways, uh, I think that makes a fascinating place to wrap up uh, our conversation. Uh, this has been really, really interesting. So uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you yeah. think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a fascinating question. I think more than anything else, it's, self-confidence. Um, I think one of the things that I've found again and again that separates the people who do great things from the people who don't is how they feel when they've made a mistake and when they've, when they've, when they've kind of 
they've uh, they've they've done something that like oh whoops that wasn't that didn't turn out the way I wanted it to. I, I guess that's what it is. I guess in short, fear of failure. Um, if if you can if you can go through life um, not being crippled by the fear of failure, uh, that that is I think what's going to make somebody more unmistakable than anything else. Amazing. Um, well, this has been, like I said, really fascinating. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything else that you're up to? Sure. The easiest thing to do is to go to jessyshell.com. Um, that, that has pointers to the, the work I do at the Entertainment Technology Center, as well as Shell Games, uh, links to my book, uh, links to the talks I've given over time. All, everything is there. Very cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.